You're listening to Creatives Prevail, unraveling the stories of creative professionals. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Creatives Prevail. I am your wonderful host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is screenwriter, producer, and director, Joe Russo. In this interview, we discuss his part in developing ASU's film program and getting his first job in Hollywood, leading into producing films such as Nightmare Cinema, The Greatest Beer Run Ever, and co-writing the Bruce Willis-helmed Hard Kill. We also discuss how the podcast Postmortem with legendary horror filmmaker and screenwriter Mick Garris was developed. In addition, we discuss our thoughts about the future of the film industry. Let's get into it. Hey Joe, how's it going? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. I, I appreciate you asking me to come on. It's uh, you know we've known each other for a little while now, and and uh, I know we've had a, a mutual appreciation, and it's nice to finally get on the horn and and, and chat. Absolutely. I think one of the uh, times I really got a chance to talk to you was I think at Chris's birthday party, um, where I came and surprised him, and we had a whole like gather out, uh, gather. And I remember in the kitchen we were talking all kinds of things about film, and you know, you and I love the same kind of film, so it was really easy to just pick up a conversation with you. It was a lot of fun. That was a really great party. It was a really great party. So for full context, we uh, met through a mutual friend, uh, Chris. Christopher Leon Price, who also has been a guest on the Creators Prevail podcast before, it was a great interview. I've known Chris for a very, very long time. And um, so that's essentially how we came to meet. Yes. Yep. And I uh, I went to school with Chris and, um, you know, more more recently, uh, you know, we, we, we produced not one, but two podcasts together, uh, the Postmortem with Mick Garris podcast. Uh, and one that we do with our, where, where we we talk uh, called Hollywood Hangover. Both I really enjoy. And that's not me le- plugging in. That's like legitimately I thoroughly enjoy listening to Postmortem and Hollywood Hangover. And I think I actually listen to more hang- Hollywood Hangover than even Postmortem. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, the, the shows couldn't be more different in, in format and topic. Uh, you know, Postmortem is much more of an interview series with, you know, established genre filmmakers and uh, Hollywood Hangover, Chris and I always try to find a, a topic that's uh, kind of impacting the movie industry uh, right now and tie it to a recent release movie um, and kind of discuss the movie through that lens. Uh, so it's kind of fun. They're very different. Absolutely. And you mentioned you went to uh, ASU for film, right? Just like Chris? Yes, I went to Arizona State. Do you remember when you decided that you wanted to pursue a career in film? I do. And it was not at Arizona State. Uh, I was in my freshman year of college uh, at a different school, uh, Quinnipiac University back in Connecticut. Uh, I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, People might recognize the name of Quinnipiac from all the political polls. Uh, Otherwise, they wouldn't know what it is because it's just basically an interchangeable private school in the Northeast. Uh, (laughs) um, But it was a nice school. But, but, uh, you know, I was doing one year there and my buddy, Andrew Pappas, who was kind of one of those uh, Spielberg kids, like, you know, he was in the, the AV club and he was making movies all through high school. Um, you know, he knew I had a, a, a very big love and appreciation for movies, having kind of grown up on them and being the thing that I did with my parents because uh, they weren't really sports people. They were, we were movie people. Uh, he asked if I wanted to go to a 
weekend filmmaking seminar with him uh that that fall of my freshman year it was called the action cut filmmaking seminar with guy magar who directed like one of the late stage children of the corn movies uh (laughs) and and it was so interesting for me to like be near and hear and listen to someone who actually went and like tangibly made a movie in my brain i went oh this sounds like a a fun career and and maybe even kind of an easy career uh (laughs) I, I should do that. I don't know what neurons were found. In, in <laughs> we never, we really never know when we get into it, right? Like, yeah, sure, why not? How hard can it be? <laughs> all, all, all the confidence of a naive 18-year-old. Uh, and so, so yeah, so I, I, I went to that thing and, and I left that going, man, I really kind of want to figure out how to do this. And growing up in Connecticut, you know, I was so far away from from Hollywood um, but my parents were moving out to Arizona and I could get in-state tuition at ASU and suddenly, you know, Phoenix, Arizona felt a lot closer to Los Angeles, California than, than where I was currently. So, uh, the problem was when I got to ASU though, there was no film school. Uh, so that, that was, that was a little bit of a miscalculation. Um, but I joined, I, I went into the journalism program uh, where I started studying media analysis and criticism. Uh, and I actually became an accredited film critic, which is like wow. a weird side of my, my journey. But uh, I did that and uh, I got involved with this group called the Arizona State Filmmakers Association, the AFA. And uh, they were in the process of trying to petition to start a film school. Uh, so I got involved in that initiative and we did all these like 400 level classes where we were meeting with who became the head of the the film school, uh, Miguel Valenti, um, and talking about like what we would want from a film program. It was very like kind of just like blue sky, uh, pie in the sky, 18, 19 year old kids wish fulfillment conversations. Um, but it eventually shaped into a proposal that became uh, the film program. And, and now it's a, a very like robust program. They just opened a multi-million dollar facility with studios and, and ADR facilities and color correction bays and a full on Dolby surround th- sound theater. And I'm just like, I want to go back to school. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you too now? Are you kidding? <laughs> wow. That's amazing that you were actually a, a proponent of the film school even being created at Arizona State. I played a part in it. I don't want to say I was a proponent of it. I was a, Fair. Um, you know, Jared Scott Mercer was definitely the one who was leading that charge, but, but I was in, you know, his kind of immediate, or there was like, I don't know, maybe like 10 kids around that table, you know, kind of brainstorming what this thing could be. And, and, and it's really been special to see how it has evolved. Wow. Were you one of the first students then to be part of the program? I was in the second graduating class. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yep. That's incredible. So, okay. Besides help being a small part of creating an entire film program at Arizona state, you then of course, you know, the goal was eventually to move out to Los Angeles, correct? Yeah. That was always, that was always the goal, but I did go on a a brief detour while I was in Arizona because uh, at the time there was still a tax incentive program uh, and there was a lot of movies and TV shows and things coming through town. And so I was able to get a lot of, 
production work while I was finishing school and right after I finished school. Uh, pretty much up until 2010, when the state brilliantly got rid of the tax incentive and all of the crew base basically scattered to other tax incentive states like New Mexico and Louisiana and Georgia, etc. Um, and so I basically had to make a choice at that moment in time. It was, you know, stick around Arizona and try to keep propping up a, a dying film industry, uh, go to one of these tax incentive states and keep working with, you know, the, the crews that I was friendly with from Arizona or move out to Los Angeles. Um, and I, I took the, the scariest one, <laughs> but obviously it did pay off for you. So, you know, it may be the, the boldest, if you will, of moves, but definitely was a big payoff. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, I kind of always knew if I wanted to not be, um, you know, there's there's a division that they call below the line and above the line uh, on, on movie call sheets. And it's basically like the actors, the directors, the producers, the writers, they're considered, quote unquote, above the line. Uh, and then the rest of the crew is considered below the line. Uh, and, and I, and I kind of knew if I if I wanted to not just be a below the line local hire for these companies when they would come through, um, I was going to need to get out to L.A., um, and so, so my wife very graciously, uh, let me take that chance. That's amazing. That's, that's also great to have that kind of a partner in your life that is, you know, willing to move your entire life from, even though, I mean, Arizona, California are next to each other, but still that's, that is a major life change. Yeah. Well, and she did, she didn't let me do it quite at first, or, or, she, or I should say she didn't, she didn't jump in head first. Uh, what, what, what happened was she basically said, uh, you know, I got an internship out in LA and she said, um, well, you can go do that, but every weekend you're coming home. And so I started driving back and forth between LA and, and Phoenix, which for people who don't know, that's like a six and a half hour drive if there's no traffic and there's always traffic. Uh, so, so I was, I was doing that every weekend um, you know, until I got a job and then eventually moved her out about 10 months later. Um, so we, we kind of did a long distance thing for a little bit. Um, she liked it cause you know, we were in our, you know, early to mid twenties at the time. And when I would roll in on a Friday night after driving back from LA, I came in just in time to pick her up from the bar. Uh, so, so <laughs> it was, it was perfect for her. She, she had no complaints. <laughs> there you go. Very convenient. <laughs> I remember that too, because I lived in Los Angeles for about a year and I actually had, I actually had a girlfriend in Arizona. So I would do literally that almost every couple of weeks would just go do the trek back and forth. And, you know, you get used to it, but it is, it is pretty brutal for a drive. But, you know, but that's what, you know, sometimes you have to make those. Figure those out where all of the good bathroom stops are. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. You know, <laughs> I, I knew exactly when I needed to chug a five hour energy to make it the rest of the way. Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, Yep. So it was, it was, it was, it was a trek. There was, and there was a couple of weekends where it was a real nightmare getting home, but, but uh, you know, we, we made it work. I, I ended up getting a job out here and she moved out here and I killed that car. Uh, may it rest in peace that Chevy Malibu, but uh, um, you know, it was it obviously, like you said, it, it, it um, some would say it paid off. I say maybe it's paying off, like, you know, it's still not quite where I want to be. Uh, with my career, but, but heading in the right direction, you know? 
we'll get to some of your accomplishments because I, I would respectfully disagree. I think you've done amazing things. And always, always when I see your, you know, when you're announcing your projects, it's, it's always truly incredible to see, you know, how, how far you've already come. That's and, right. um, but I do want to go back to, you mentioned about the internship. So, cause that's something that I know, you know, there's so many people that mention about going out to LA or to, you know, especially if they want to get into the film industry and, how challenging it can be to get in that industry to, like you said, to get above that line. So what, like, did that internship help? How did that internship help you? Well, uh, the internship became a job. So that, that's how okay. it helped me. So, so, gotcha. so I mean, yeah, I mean the, the problem with internships in general is they don't always translate into one-to-one -one to becoming a job, but uh, I, I luckily for me, it did. Uh, and, and really truly it was just a circumstance of, you know, you know, they'd say like, what, luck is the crossroad between uh, being prepared and opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of those situations where I had just directed a short film and it was playing the festival circuit. Uh, while I was interning at the company, um, I actually shot another short film. So I had like a brand new fresh sample and uh, I got a meeting with the CEO of the company. Um, unbeknownst to me, the assistant who set up the meeting with the CEO uh, was planning to leave and he was intending to use this meeting and, and my shorts as a way to try to push his boss to hire me to be his new assistant. Um, so it was just one of those things where I had, I had two really good directing samples on my hand uh, and, and they impressed this assistant enough that he said, this kid deserves this desk you know um and and so the ceo watched my stuff and he said you have the talents you have the entrepreneurial spirit you don't know anyone you don't know how the industry works come work for me uh and, and that's how and wow. that's that's literally so that's how my internship became that opportunity uh yeah and what what kind of work were you what kind of responsibilities did you have both in the internship in comparison to the assistant position the internship was very much just a uh, script development type deal. Uh, so it was, you know, I'd go into the office, they'd either email me or hand me a script. Um, I would read it and then I would do coverage on it. Uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, very quickly, I think they realize, oh, you know, Joe's coverage is uh, very readable and he, he has good thoughts uh, and, you know, like one, one of the, one of the things that was like most surprising was, you know, cause I applied for a bunch of internships trying to land this one. Um, and, you know, usually they send you not great scripts cause they're trying to see, you know, critically what you can say and blah, 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 blah. Uh, when I got the script that, that the, the company that ultimately hired me for the internship, when they sent me for the sample coverage, uh, I read it and I was like, this is really good. Uh, I was like, I feel like I'm getting like punked, you know? Uh, so I wrote like a pretty nice piece of coverage on it and and like went on a limb and said, recommend. Uh, little did I know at the time, this script was set up with the company as a project. So they, they were fans of it too. Wow. Um, the even wilder thing is uh, it had a different title at the time, but that script would go on to become a movie called Happy Death Day uh, that Blumhouse released and made a yes. lot of money. Uh, so, so I, I, I feel very like my career is like intrinsically linked to that movie. Uh, 
That's incredible. And, and it goes to show too that, you know, sometimes it's important to, I don't want to necessarily st- say stick to your guns, but really be honest about your opinion and feedback on things because you don't know, like you mentioned, you know, sometimes you may think that you are giving them what they want, but in reality, first of all, I think most people that have been in industry for a while, n- you know, they can smell it a mile away when you're, you know, you're just saying things just to please them. But second of all, you know, you, you should be able to back up what you believe in and what your opinions are. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, so I, I, I really like, I, I had like a, I remember when I read the script and wrote the coverage, I had like a, a real panic of like, am I doing the right thing? You know? And I was like, no, I just have to be true to myself and be honest and say, I like this thing. And, and anyway, so I got, I got the job and, and, uh, but you know, once I started working on, uh, Bill's desk as his assistant, I mean, basically when you're an assistant to a high level executive or producer or agent in Hollywood, your life basically becomes serving them. Uh, like you, you serve at their leisure. Uh, so it was, you know, a lot of like managing his expense accounts, setting up doctor's appointments, scheduling meetings, uh, listening in on phone calls and taking notes reading the scripts that he was getting and giving my feedback on them. Like um, there was, you know, so a a lot, a lot of that kind of thing, Uh, you know, and, and through that process of of doing that, um, you really do get it. Like you start to learn who all the agents are and who all the executives are. And, you know, you you start to, you see how emails are formatted and and how scripts are submitted. and, And you just slowly start to like, accumulate kind of the base level skills that you're going to need for the rest of your career uh which is why you know getting an assistant position still kind of is one of the last like apprentice based jobs i feel like there is you know um it's not fun and the pay is low uh and like i said your your life kind of becomes secondary to theirs but uh you do learn a lot you know and i'm sure that's helped you prepare to what you do currently I would assume. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Bill told me one time, uh, Bill Todman, he told me one time that like the whole idea behind assistance are if you can't schedule meetings and manage expense accounts, like if you can't do that kind of base level stuff, roll, roll calls, uh, if you can't do that, how is anyone ever going to entrust you with millions of dollars to make a movie? Um, so when he said that, the the logic made a lot of sense to me, you know. Absolutely. So we're gonna jump ahead a little bit here because uh, I know there's there's just so much to cover. Um, so great, you're getting that experience as an assistant, right? But still trying to get above that line. So what was the next step that you took to help you get, you know, t- you know to get above that line? Well, I got I got promoted a couple times at that company um to creative exec and then and then director of development and then uh when i left that job i did a, a, a brief kind of uh development consultancy with christina aguilera's production company uh for two years um so I, I ended up working in development for about seven years in total um but kind of during the last half of that once i kind of had more of a balance on my schedule um i kind of threw myself back into writing again um and that's really the thing i think that kind of changed the direction of my career um you know i had been reading screenplays every day working at the development job 
you know, sometimes more than one screenplay a day. Uh, and I think that just kind of through reading a lot, uh, my writing just naturally got better. Uh, and, and cause I learned a lot of what I liked and what I didn't like. And I tried to apply it into my own writing. Uh, and so my writing partner and I, Chris Lamont, were kind of quietly working away at night, uh, on, on some, some new material and, uh, a pilot that we co-wrote with another writer, uh, got set up at Will Smith's company. Um, and that was kind of when we were like, oh, maybe I should be focusing more on this and less on the, the development stuff, you know? Uh, and, and so my, my priorities kind of shifted a bit and, you know, the next thing we wrote, um, landed us our, our manager, uh, the thing we wrote after that, uh, got us our, our agents, uh, and our first sale. Um, and it just kind of started building from there. Um, and, and then, you know, once, once that kind of opened the door towards me going, moving towards becoming an independent uh, writer and producer, um, you know, I took some of the projects with me that I had been developing uh, at, at level one. Um, and one of those things went into production, which is a movie called Nightmare Cinema. Um, and that was kind of the, you know, it was, so it was, it was kind of, you know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't, it wasn't a fun process uh, leaving a consistent paycheck. Uh, but, you know, getting kind of pushed out of the nest, so to speak, uh, and going out on my own, that allowed me the freedom to go actually take all these skills that I had, had learned and use them to try and, and get a movie made. And, and I did. And that was, the, that was the thing that pushed me, quote unquote, above the line. And also I want to point out too about Nightmare Cinema is that because it's it's essentially if I and correct me if I'm wrong it's it's like essentially a, a, an anthology of various different stories all in one and it's not just that it's also directed by some of the greatest horror directors of all time so yes <laughs> yeah. yeah uh I mean that's so, an amazing feat right off the bat <laughs> it was it was a good one to kind of shoot out the gate with um and and I'll forever be grateful uh for letting Nick Garris kind of hand me the uh the football to go run around town with for a little bit um but uh but yeah i mean mick came into level one uh for a general meeting um and he pitched us basically he wanted to redo his old horror anthology series masters of horror under a new name um and you know we we took it around town and we tried to shop it as a series and for various reasons anthologies always kind of a hard sell and as excited uh as people were about kind of the idea of working with some of the the higher up people in mixed black book i think they were worried about their availability when it actually came time to shoot like is guillermo del toro actually going to go shoot an episode of this thing you know we don't know uh and there was no way for us to guarantee that other than you know guillermo signed an loi saying he's gonna do it Right. But but that's not binding. <laughs> mm -hmm. And LOI is a letter of intent, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, my boss and his infinite wisdom pronounced the project dead. Uh, and, you know, Mick and I went our separate ways for about six months. And, and then when I left uh, the development job and, and, and went solo, I called Mick back up and asked if I could start 
you know, kind of running with that ball again. And I think it was that fall we had we had set the project up for for some development financing to get the script done. So it, it was it was really uh, a short amount of time before, you know, between uh, me leaving that job and then and then getting kind of the first one, quote unquote, going. Uh, and and just put also into context too how important Mick is is that Mick it was one of the writers for uh, Hocus Pocus, if yep. I remember correctly. Um, he's also you know ha- has directed so many horror films in the past as yes. well. I mean he's he is a horror I think legend. He's directed the most Stephen King stories of any filmmaker. That's any incredible. Single, single filmmaker, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, and he wrote Batteries Not Included, and and he directed Psycho Four and Critters Two, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's had a a very storied career. So it's it's been very cool uh, to to I guess, for lack of a better term, ride on his coattails a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but also at the same token, you you believed in that in that idea that Mick passed along, and you helped essentially you know get it past the goal line, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, absolutely. Uh, and and it, one of the really special things about that particular project was uh, kind of my my partner on the movie. Uh, was someone I went to school with and someone who I made a bunch of short films with in school, Brandon Hill. Um, and so for us to both kind of have that first real win in our careers and, and to have done it together was like also a really kind of special feather in our caps. You mentioned also before about the fact that the, all these things essentially snowball, right? Is is the fact that you had you you had the internship and you had you you were able to essentially get an apprenticeship, if you will, as an assistant, but then also because of those skills and relationships you're building, we're able to essentially, you know, and after being promoted a number of times, be off, be able to go off on your own independently and then be able to do those things. And like you mentioned, one thing you can see like the breadcrumbs, if you will, that one thing does truly lead to another. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, the way that first script that we, wrote that got set up at will smith's company it was it was i had met a friend at caa another assistant and uh and she offered to read it and then she kicked it up to her boss and then he happened to rep will smith and so they sent it over to that you know their company overbrook and uh so it was like that's honestly that's kind of always been the way it is 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 you you, the, the key to i think success is uh, networking and, and and building those relationships and fostering genuine relationships and not just like hey i'm meeting you with the hopes that you're going to do something for me uh but like you know build that relationship to the point where it's it's they're happy to do something for you um and and uh you know i got really great advice when i first moved out to la um from the the chairman of the bank my wife was working at at the time uh, and he said, when you go out there, try to meet two new people a week. Uh, he's like, because by the time the year's over, you will have met over a hundred new people. And I was like, wow, that's like, that doesn't, two people doesn't seem like that big uh, a thing. But when you think about how that kind of snowballs, um, you know, it, it really, truly like almost every, you know, success story in my career, I can probably point to some sort of relationship where someone gave someone something or someone did some, you know, it's almost always happened that way. Absolutely. It's, it's so, it's so important building relationships. Um, But in addition to that too, is um, one of our, uh, one of the things that our good friend Chris has said to me in the past is 
always be seen. And the reason why I bring that up is that you've also got some attention on your Twitter account as well. <laughs> so can you, talk a, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that, I mean, that just because you've been quoted like from like some of the top press in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> from your Twitter account. Uh, that's true. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder if they know which Trevor's that they're quoting, but <laughs> yes, uh, that, that being said, um, no, you know, it was, it was right, right around the time we started shooting nightmare cinema. Um, I, I had a Twitter account for a year and I didn't do anything with it. I literally signed up to get a free pizza on it. And, and then I didn't touch it for like a year. Um, and you know and and i used facebook kind of like everybody else and and then i would post you know photos of my dog on instagram and um but when nightmare cinema went into production um you know when i started doing uh the social media for the post-mortem podcast um that's when i started to realize like the power of building a brand on social media um and I guess I could say, like, it was pretty cynical, uh, <laughs> my decision to really start to embrace using uh, Twitter and Instagram more. Um, it, it was it was it was it was a calculated thing. Um, and I'm glad that I did. And I'm glad that I did it when I did, because I see a lot of people who right before their movie comes out, they either sign up for Twitter and or they like reactivate their Twitter or whatever. And, and, and they're like, Oh, in these three or four weeks, they'll like blast out a bunch of content about their movie and then they'll disappear again. Right. Um, and that to me feels very inorganic. Uh, and so what, what I tried to do was like, let me build up my online presence in general uh, this way when a, I have a project or something important to talk about and I start pushing it, it doesn't feel quite so um, heavy-handed, forced. I, I, don't, I don't know the right word mm -hmm. for it, but but uh, um, so it doesn't it doesn't feel like I'm just shoving it down your throat, you know. Um, it's you've developed an actual relationship or some a para relationship with me uh, through through this digital avatar, um, and so that when I do talk about a movie or or, or a project. Uh, you are excited to hear about it um much in the same way we were just talking about how you build out your network and, and you try to foster a genuine relationship with someone um so that's kind of how I, I started treating it and i really saw that pay off when nightmare cinema was released uh because you know we had a teeny tiny marketing budget for that movie uh and somehow we ended up being the number two movie of the year on Shutter, um, wow. and and I I completely attributed that to uh, the directors and and probably to a smaller degree my own social media presence and kind of just pushing that out there, um, you know. And then kind of since then, uh, you know, just being around projects like that and 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 postmortem, uh, you know, my you know it, it it compounds right uh so the following get just kind of kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger um and i i would say like this year has been like the most explosive growth for me uh on that platform which is great because it also feels like it's in its death rows uh but, yeah. But, yeah. 
So be, at the time of this recording, and actually be there, uh, be there at the end uh, when when I finally have a a, a decent soapbox to stand on. It's uh, true. And, and as of this recording, which actually this will probably come out fairly quickly, but uh, recently Threads came out, which is the direct Twitter competitor now, which has been very very fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I, you know, I, I've, I've kind of just been like redundantly posting my tweets to thread or, or some of them, you know? Um, and, you know, I think it was nice that uh, a lot of your Instagram following could, could port over. So, so unlike, you know, blue sky, which I'm, I also joined uh, where I have to build from the ground up again, uh, at least there's like a little bit of a floor with threads. Um, but I, I just, I'm not like in love with either user interface um, and I'm not going to lie, like as annoying as some of the incelly troll types on, on Twitter are like, I, I still find just the, the, the kind of ex the explosive, uh, impact a single tweet can have good or bad, uh, attention wise. Um, I find that to be just more exciting, you know, uh, to me, I don't know. Um, That's fair. Yeah. So, so. I don't see myself leaving the platform anytime soon for, for threads, but you know, maybe, you know, maybe it'll, it'll catch up an in interest to me, but uh, um, as of, as of right now, I'm, I'm still, you know, I, I, I posted some dumb joke about the new Indiana Jones movie the other day. And I mean, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of replies and they were all so funny. Uh, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't get that, you know, on these other platforms. Uh, so, yeah. I do want to talk about you also producing podcasts because that is a very different animal and talk about specifically postmortem, which is Mick Garris's podcast, of course. And um, so you can talk about how that came about and what your role's like on that end. Sure. Uh, so when we were doing Nightmare Cinema, um, you know, and, and kind of the run up in like our, our early stage pre-production, uh, you know, Mick had Mick has historically been uh, an interviewer. He had a, a show in the late '70s on the Z Channel. Um, he did a lot of like classic EPKs for movies like The Thing and Gremlins and Goonies, and um, and and most more most recently before before the podcast, uh, he had done a TV version of of uh, Postmortem, uh, a very short lived version of it, but. Uh, so I had seen those videos, um, you know, on his website. And so I was very aware of his, his ability to interview. Um, and it was, it was so random, you know, uh, our friend Chris Bryce has, has been in podcasting forever. And, you know, and I had gone on his podcast a couple times at that point. Um, but, you know, my interest in it was very passive. I'd only really just started to get into listening to them. Um, and, I was thinking to myself, man, you know, I was listening to a, a wrestling interview podcast and I was thinking, I bet I could get, like, I bet Mick could do this, you know, like I bet he could do this with horror people, you know, like instead of just, you know, wrestlers getting interviewed, I was like, let's get horror directors in, you know, and, and have Mick do that. And literally like within a week, I, I like projected this into the world, I guess. Uh, I went to a party and I met uh, a guy who worked at a company called Podcast One, and we started talking. And you know, I felt like I had a little bit of karma built up because uh, people are always like, "I'm going to pitch you a movie idea." Uh, so, 
So I said to this guy, I was like, I'm going to pitch you a podcast. <laughs> um, weirdly enough, he was like, he's like, yeah, I, I get it. I see the value in that. He's like, if you can get Mick to say, yes, I'll set up a meeting with our CEO. And I did. And he did. And within three or four months, Postmortem was on the air. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And now it's been around for how many years now? Uh, we're in our seventh season. Uh, wow. So we, we launched in 2017. So yeah, we're, uh, we've been, we've been kicking around for a little while now. Um, I think we've got over 170 interviews. Um, and because we do these ask Mick anything episodes, like I think we're well over 250 episodes in total. Uh, so there's a lot of content parsed through and, and with really, amazing filmmakers too that we've we've been able to kind of meet through the podcast uh you know i mean everyone from stephen king to john carpenter guillermo del toro uh edgar wright uh i mean like pretty much you name it they've probably been on the show jamie yeah. lee curtis jason blum um you know so it's it's uh it's bruce campbell i mean it's it's been it's been pretty it's been pretty fun um you know and uh so yeah i mean that that's but like day to day my job on that is you know again kind of like making sure that everything kind of stays on track uh mostly you know making sure that that our team is is on schedule you know whether it's uh you know chris who who's done a, a wonderful job the last couple of years handling all of our engineering um you know or, or our graphic designer making sure all those deliverables are, are on time uh, but I think the, the biggest kind of job is just like figuring out who Mick wants to talk to next uh, and then actually like delivering on, you know, finding a way to get in touch with that person. If it's if he and I don't have that relationship directly uh, or, you know, you know, parsing our way into that, uh, actually getting it scheduled, dealing with all the, you know, sometimes studio red tape that we have to get through to get to some of these people um and you know figuring out different angles for the episodes like that's that's kind of where i think the the meat and potatoes of the work comes in um you know yeah so let's go back to film uh for a second we're going to start wrapping up things here but i wanted to talk to you about the future of film because there is so much going on right now in the film industry i mean everything you know between you know right as of this uh, recording there's still the wga um uh it's, it's wga right wga that's it uh so the, i mean the, as of this morning that strike is still going on right now but of course there's big conversations about the usage of ai and of course like where streaming is going in the future and so forth so you know where's your thoughts at right now about the future of the film industry I mean, we're definitely in a bit of a market correction. I, I actually admit is that we're in a huge market correction. Um, you know, I think streaming created a a land grab overreach, uh, and and that needs to balance out. Um, you know, that's that's going to mean uh, I, we've already seen kind of studios start to to lean back into theatrical. Um, which I think, you know, fans of cinema were, are, have been very happy to see when we were kind of worried that it wasn't going to survive the pandemic. Um, you know, it's it's a genuine revenue stream that lifts up 
all of the other revenue streams in the waterfall. Um, and so, so it's, it's, you know, just, just as of today, uh, some friends of mine, uh, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, they had a movie come out earlier this year called 65, uh, which is a, a dinosaur movie with Adam driver. And it did okay box office. Like it, it didn't set the world on fire. It didn't open at number one, but just the, the fact that it was out in theaters had a theatrical marketing campaign. There was an awareness of it. Uh, it dropped on Netflix the other day and it's the number one movie on Netflix today. Uh, so, you know, it's like if you want your streaming movies to, I don't know, have a more robust audience and, and have that audience feel like they're getting more value from it. I don't know, maybe, maybe spend some money and put your movies in theaters first and, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, rather than just like dumping them into the algorithm and hoping people find them. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's crazy. I, I, you know, we're, we're in a, a very strange moment where, uh, most famously you see Batgirl getting canceled for a tax write-off and you've seen other studios start to jump into this idea of, you know, the Disney, for example, just, just got rid of a bunch of content, uh, on June 30th. One of them was a movie that had been out for six weeks. Um, like that's crazy yeah uh, and it's just like all that work just like disappeared into the ether I, I think that's something that unfortunately it's probably too late for the writers guild to get involved with um in in this negotiation cycle because we've we've got our own existential things that we're fighting currently on strike um to add another would probably be very challenging um but i do think it's something that that's going to have to be regulated at some point down the line because we can't just have them junking all these people's work uh you know and and um whether that's the government getting in and saying guys this is actually a viable product you can't just take a write-off on it and say it was a loss you know mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know i don't know what i don't know what that looks like but that that needs to be addressed there's a lot of really systemic problems and and a lot of them are on the table with uh the writer's strike and potentially uh, as of this recording, an actor's strike. Um, so, you know, and, and obviously artificial intelligence is one of those big things. I certainly have my thoughts on it, as I'm sure you do, too, in regards to the music industry. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, what what's like, are you, are you genuinely pro-AI, or are you, what do you think? I, so where my stance is with AI is that I'm very, very excited for what it can do, but very respectful for making sure it's being used responsibly Yeah, is the way I see it, is that I'm not afraid of AI. What I'm concerned about is AI being abused. And there's a very big distinction between those things. I'm not afraid of the technology. I think the technology is, fa is incredible. I think that it's going to make so many things a lot easier in fact i i use it already for uh you know for podcast descriptions for the episodes i use it and if you'll if you go back you'll see when i start using it because you'll see the, the language slightly changes but I, it's still me it's like it's i still add i still don't take it verbatim i still take from it and then i modify it but sometimes it's just great for idea generation or to help improve upon your writing so if you're writing something that's not that great it's, it's just sometimes a great um, jumping off point if you will and it's only going to just get better from here it'll eventually will get to the point where it'll learn your own style 
And I think once that happens, once that's commonplace, it's just, but if you think about it and yes, there are going to be jobs that are going to be disrupted because of this. There's no question about it. But if you look at history, anytime there's a major advancement in technology, there's been jobs been displaced and that, and, and because of that new jobs were created. And that's the, I always like to use, I know this is very simplistic terms, but I always like to use um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory with um, T Tim Burton's version and that Charlie's father got in the beginning of the film got laid off because they found a machine that would put the caps onto the toothpaste. And then at the end of the film, he was the technician that was fixing the machine that replaced his job. Right. right. So he went from just simply just checking quality of, of toothpaste caps and putting them on to actually like having engineering skills to, to fix machines. Yeah. So it was an upgrade in his, in his career to doing something that is, you know, it's far, far higher skill. Yeah. And that's the way I, I know that it's very, very simplistic, but that's, I think so, that something we always have to look at is that yes, you know, anytime you have this kind of major disruption, people are going to lose their jobs. It's just inevitably going to happen but new jobs are going to get created because of it. And I firmly believe that as long as we're using it responsibly, that it, it will be, you know, a very, very helpful tool for so many people. One of my directors uh, from Nightmare Cinema, David Slade, has been one of the, the people I know who's been experimenting with Midjourney the most. Uh, and the if you go to his Instagram, he's posted some incredible artwork that he's he's created and generated with it um but at the end of the day he's still the one curating it right it's still being curated through the david slade approval process right mm -hmm. and that's how i i kind of see it needs to be handled is there still needs to be a human involved in the process uh who has a degree of taste who has a vision for whatever the cumulative uh project is going to be um because it doesn't always spit out something that is good uh, in fact it almost always does not uh and so you know honestly right now you can spend more time fiddling with prompts to try to get it to spit you out something that's usable than it would be to just write the damn thing or, or draw the damn thing right uh yep. so so it's still, and obviously it's still in its infancy and it could in theory potentially get better. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, for me right now, practically it's been more of a, like a research tool, you know, uh, if I was going to write a scene about X and I needed something, you know, specific to happen, like for example, uh, I was looking at like, can oxygen canisters explode and how can they explode and gave me a whole little write-up on on how oxygen canisters explode and, and then i kind of went through and i said oh this is kind of what i need for my scene and then go and write the scene based off that thing right um it's not write me a scene where an oxygen canister explodes uh because you know it would go off and write something that's probably completely different than what i need for my specific uh you know piece of writing that i'm doing so absolutely so for me it's 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 i'm i'm starting to use it more um but it's it's again it's been more kind of in that regard uh because every time i've ever tried to ask it to just write a scene with prompts it's never delivered anything of any substance that i can use uh 
Yeah, and and I find, and also too, you discover that it, you know, especially depending upon the AI tool that you're using, it does have its own language. So, and people are catching on very quickly to know <laughs> what tool you're using. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, and Mid Journey visually too has a very yes. distinctive kind of look. Even the best Mid Journey art, you can still kind of tell it was probably done in Mid Journey. Uh, you know, it's all still very center framed. It's all you know, um, it's it's so. There are there are real limitations to it that I'm curious to see if and how they will expand. Uh, and you know, but I think the reality is in terms of um, you know the WGA strike and and the and the looming SAG actors strike. Uh, I think if we don't put some guardrails up now, uh, in three years when our contracts are up again, it will probably be too late uh, to put them up. And like you said, it's not the AI that's scary. It's not the tool that's scary. It's what if the wrong people are using it for the wrong purposes? Uh, and I think we have an opportunity to kind of, you know, set set uh, some, some ground rules on it uh, and ground rules that I think will then pattern to other industries as well. Um, so, you know, I, it's weird to think that the Hollywood writers and actors have a chance to like shape the future of the world. But weirdly we do. <laughs> we might. It's very true because it's going to, like you mentioned about the music industry, especially it's going to apply across the board to so many creative industries, like, you know, you know, for, for several different reasons. And you're right. It's like setting those ground rules of stating, okay, this is how it should be used responsibly so that, it's like you said, it's not being in the wrong, you know, being used for the wrong purposes. And I think that's so important because we have to still respect the creatives. Creative still has to be involved in the process. And we want to make sure that corners are not being cut because, you know, just in general, quality is going to diminish. And now we're, we're going to be the race at the bottom. And that's not going to help out anybody in the long run. Exactly. And and honestly, it'll just kill the golden goose, especially for these entertainment industries. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. It's, it's just amazing. <laughs> I, you know, I... I never would have thought that AI would have come for the arts first, but here we are. But here we are. That's right. So we'll end on a couple of lighter notes. So I do uh, like to ask a couple of questions. Um, usually it's music related, but we're going to talk about something different that's more related to you. Right. Uh, so first question, earliest memory of watching a movie? Ooh, my earliest memory of watching a movie. Um, I saw Bambi in the theater with my family. And I remember when the mom gets killed. Spoilers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> and, and I turned to my mother, apparently, and I said, who's going to make Bambi lunch? <laughs> <laughs> That's, probably... That's the best memory ever. <laughs> I oh, think... Don't worry. She has never let me forget that. Wow. I think that also kind of sets you up for your love for horror as well. It's like, no, we're not worried about the mom dying. It's like, no, it was going to make Bambi lunch. I'll also say probably the other thing I remember distinctly was uh, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs. I was terrified of the queen once she turned into the witch. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely terrified of of her look uh, and, and um, had nightmares, uh, you know, where she would appear... Uh, in in my you know in my furniture and talk to me and it was it was it was scary shit. Uh, so those yeah. are probably the two like distinctly like you know things I can remember. Uh, th so I think the latter definitely prepared me for for horror. Uh, mm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a most quoted film? 
Oh man, I, it's probably Ghostbusters. Uh, I mean, it's my favorite movie of all time, and and I, I feel like I'm constantly slipping lines from that in into casual daily conversation, even if people don't even recognize them. And I do tend to sneak a line here or there or an idea from it into the stuff that I'm writing. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd say probably that's that's the safe answer. If you were to give only one advice to somebody who is trying to uh, have a career in the film industry, what would that one piece of advice be? Are they, are, are they trying to be screenwriters or what are they trying to do? If you can do overall, that'd be great. But if you want to do specifically screenwriters, overall, that's fine too. I think, um, I think one of the things that people, um, one of the mistakes they, they make is they have a plan B uh, and and very quickly plan B can become plan A. Uh, and, and, you know, if you have a plan B, if you, you know, you, you need a job that can sustain you enough while you still chase your creative passions, because if that job overtakes your life to the point where, um, you're, you don't have time to write, or you don't have time to direct, or you don't have time to go to those auditions or take those acting classes or wh whatever, right? Um, you, you very you quickly you're going to realize, oh my gosh, several years have gone by and I haven't accomplished my goals. Um, you know, I got very lucky that my day job out here was working in entertainment, but you know, I was I you know it definitely put my writing career on the back seat for a little while, and it wasn't until like I actively started, you know, trying to to write at night, um, and taking an hour or two a day to, to put that energy in outside of my day job that, that things really started to happen. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it's, it's allowing yourself the freedom to have the time to make those, those creative, take those creative chances uh, and not just getting lost in the day to day. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so, so much, Joe. I really do appreciate you taking the time to jumping on the podcast. I mean, this was such a blast. So I really enjoyed this. Thanks, Mike. I really, I really enjoyed it too. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Creatives Prevail. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave us a review. They are an immense help. Now go out there and make something happen.